So Jesus, we ask that you would make us new through the power of your word. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, hello. Good to see all of you here with us. Those of you watching online, thank you for joining us. My goodness, what a difference a little bit of sunshine makes, right? It just changes everything. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Amarillo, Texas as a guest preacher. Um, I do a guest preaching thing maybe once a year or once every other year. And last year, I was a guest preacher in Paris. This year, Amarillo. So trajectory is not good. Um, and Amarillo is very rural, like it is real Texas, right? And they were so nice. They even did a story on me in the newspaper, like front section, no less, right? So, so give me some respect. I, I am a very important person in Amarillo. And I, it was great. I got to eat steak the first night. I ate steak the second night ate nothing but steak, and, and I assured my host that having grown up in eastern Washington, this was all very familiar to me. I understand barren deserts where chicken is considered a vegetable, right? Like, I get that. But I must have seemed like an alien from a strange land because they gave me a book called Speak Texan in 30 Minutes. And the first page promises, quote, you will be able to speak Texan or at least understand Texans, because remember, you can always tell a Texan, you just can't tell them much. <laughs> so here's the point. For an entire weekend, I was in exile in a strange land called Texas. And that's kind of the issue. That is the issue in uh, the passage that we just read, exile which includes one of the best-known verses in the Bible, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and bring you a future and a hope. We're doing a sermon series on Jeremiah, so you can't leave that one out. But also, I think this passage is so applicable to us as Christians living in a post-Christian context, we should probably preach this passage once a year. Because it shows us how to thrive in exile, whether that's a personal exile experience or, or corporately. On a personal level, we have exile experiences all the time, right? Uh, when we hate school or we're in a job we don't like or no job or when a friendship ends or, or health problems, exile experiences. And then collectively, as Christians, it is easy to feel like an exile in a culture where fewer and fewer people identify as actively engaged Christians, as few as 9% here in the Seattle area. Now, the background to this text, the history here, is, is for 500 years, Israel has worshipped false gods, which included things like killing their own kids to appease those gods, having sex with temple prostitutes, uh, young men and women forced into sexual slavery, and God sent prophet after prophet to beg them to turn around, and they didn't. So after 500 years, which shows God's incredible patience... God says, okay, if the only way to get your attention is if something drastic happens, so be it. So he tells Jeremiah and other prophets to tell Israel that, that, that because they have failed to act justly, they have not cared for the immigrant, they have not cared for the poor and the oppressed, as God commands over 300 times. Because of this and their idolatry, God says, I'm taking the land away from you. You don't get to be a nation anymore. It's interesting that when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God fought for them. But when they failed to care for immigrants, the poor, the oppressed, worship false gods, then God fought against them, showing that he is not a tribal deity. He is simply against injustice wherever it shows up. 
So the Babylonian Empire, which was in modern-day Iraq, uh, burned Jerusalem to the ground and carted uh, Israelites off into exile in Babylon. Now, Babylon was just doing what Babylon did, right? Your standard pillaging and plundering of the day. But God used Babylon to accomplish his purposes. And in Babylon, a bunch of false prophets were saying to the Israelites, don't worry, this exile is not going to last long. Two years tops. Don't unpack the Samsonite. We're going home. And up to this point, Jeremiah has been doom and gloom and Debbie Downer, right? But suddenly he becomes a prophet of hope. But it's not the hope that they wanted to hear. So he sends this letter to the exiles in Babylon, and he says this. This is what the Lord says. Build houses and settle down. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, you're here for a long time. How long? When 70 years are completed, I'll bring you back. 70 years? They'd all be dead. And then God says the really scandalous thing. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. What? What? Babylon? Bless Babylon? Are you kidding me? They killed my family and friends. They took my land. They burned my house and the temple to the ground. Bless them. What are you smoking, God? Because that ain't going to happen. And when they read this, they accused Jeremiah of treason, treason, aiding and abetting the enemy. Now, the command shouldn't surprise us. This is, after all, the God who, as Jesus, comes to us as Jesus and says, love your enemies. Right? But it is shocking. But it shows us three ways how we can thrive in exile experiences, whether personally or corporately. Three things, all ending with the phrase, where you are. And the first is this. God will bless you where you are, even if you don't like it and you're with people that you don't like. Exile isn't good, but God can bring good things in it. You know, we often feel like, oh, man, life would be better if only. Like maybe back in the past. Oh, I wish it was like two years ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago. If only, I do this all the time when I look at pictures of my kids when they were little. Like, oh, remember, and now they're all big and grown up. And, but they were so little and cute, remember? Yeah, and remember the dirty diapers and the waking up at 3 a.m., right? Even to this day, to this day, my wife and I have a kind of trauma around one particular sound. Right? It's when you're sleeping at 3 a.m. and you hear the baby go, <laughs> just those first few whimpers before the screaming starts, right? And you're in bed and you're like, please, God, no, go back to sleep, go back to bed. No, right? Like to this day, when I hear that sound, like on an airplane, I have flashbacks. Right? And some of you right now are traumatized just that I said that. It wasn't perfect then. It's not going to be perfect in the future until Jesus returns. Nirvana, as it turns out, is not an option, so cross it off your list. I can't wait till I'm out of school. Can't wait till I get a job or a better job or married. And those are great things to look forward to. But as Professor Dallas Willard said, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. If we keep looking back, or ahead, we miss the blessing God could give us here and now, here in this job you hate, here with these people you don't like, here at school where you're not happy, here in this house or neighborhood where you don't want to be, here in this moment in your marriage or being a parent or a kid, here in Seattle where it is so rainy it's like living under the mister in the lettuce section of the grocery store. Here in this moment in our nation, here with all the problems in the news, not then, not there, not if only, not when, here and now I am blessing you so Jesus, give us eyes to see. 
Because more important than the, the, the climate of this place, or the economy of this place, or the people of this place, is the God who is in this place. And his name is Jesus. And he's always at work, making all things new. And of course, this doesn't mean that we just sort of passively accept our fate. We don't actively work to, to improve our situation. Of course we do. Of course we do. But as we do, know that God can bless us even where we don't want to be. The Israelites were blessed in exile. For one thing, it cured their idolatry. Never again did they worship those false gods. And they discovered that God was everywhere, which was important because, see, they thought he was just a tribal deity who lived only in Israel. But it was in exile that they discovered he is God of the entire world and can bless them anywhere. They found a deeper relationship with God, which is what it means in the verses where it says, then you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. A deeper relationship. In exile, God pried their hands off their temple, their power, their comfort, and they discovered that God was all they had and that God was all that they needed. Exile has been too good for too many people for too long to be all bad. And as Christians, collectively, the Bible says we are all exiles. The apostle Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from fleshly lusts. Hebrews says that the heroes of the faith were strangers and exiles on the earth. And the Greek word there means resident alien. Right? So we live here, but our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Which brings me to the second way we thrive in exile. So God will bless you where you are. Second, live differently where you are. God says, you know, you're here for 70 years, but then I'm going to take you back because this isn't your real home. So carry the culture of your real home here, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God simply means when anything is happening the way God would want it to happen, as if God were king. It means reconciliation. It means restoring and renewing all things to what God intended. See, the Babylonians were brilliant. They knew that the best way to get rid of rival nations wasn't to conquer them. That just makes enemies. It was to assimilate them. It was to say to them, you can have all the best jobs, you can have all the best houses, be super respected as long as you live by our culture's values, some of which were pretty ugly. So God here says to them, now don't, you know, don't condemn the culture, don't yell at the culture, but neither do you become the culture. Instead, engage the culture. Be ambassadors. And a good ambassador, good ambassadors, they're fluent in the language where they live. They appreciate the culture of that country and they love many parts of it, but always represent the values of a different country. As followers of Jesus, we can love and engage the culture, but also bring God's healing. Which brings me to my last point, which I'll spend some time on, so don't get excited like it's about to end, all right? So, God will bless you where you are, live differently where you are, and finally sacrificially love, bless, and heal where you are. See, this verse is just scandalous. I mean, we take the, for I know the plans I have for you part, you know, but we leave out the rest. It's just scandalous. God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. The Hebrew word there that's translated prosperity is shalom. And there's no English equivalent for shalom. It means total flourishing in every dimension. Social, economic, spiritual, emotional, physical flourishing. We are to bring healing and flourishing wherever we are. School, work, neighborhood, church, volunteer time. Which blesses others, but it also blesses us. And there's something in this passage I want you to look at. 
The passage says, seek the prosperity, that is the shalom, the social, economic, emotional, spiritual flourishing of the city. If it prospers, shalom, you will prosper, shalom. And then the verse we know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to shalom you, to give you a future and a hope. See, this wasn't written to an individual. It was written to a collective community. And it's saying, your shalom, my shalom, our total flourishing is linked with the flourishing of the places we are, school, work, home, neighborhood, volunteer time. This could be Bell Prez's mission verse, right? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Could you go back to the verse? Yeah, this, this could be our mission verse, right? This is, this is what we're called to do, bring God's healing wherever we are. And that blesses us. The University of North Carolina just did a study that showed that gratifying personal desire for money or success or comfort actually increases stress-related diseases, heart disease, diabetes, that sort of thing. But helping someone else on a consistent basis decreases those things by 78%. Our shalom is tied to the shalom of others. This is something I've seen on both of my trips to the West Bank and Israel, and on both those trips, heard both sides, heard from Palestinians, heard from Israelis, both sides of the conflict. One of my takeaways is that if you care about Israel and want Israel to prosper, as I do, then you will want Palestinians to prosper as well. Because in Israel's understandable desire for security, they are making life miserable for Palestinians, the vast majority of whom are not terrorists, they're just trying to live their lives. So they're building a wall, which they call the separation barrier. You know what Palestinians call it? The apartheid wall. Because it means they're cut off. They can't get into Israel where all the jobs are, which just wrecks them financially. The wall divides families, so they're cut off from loved ones. In Israel's desire for security, they are building a well of resentment in Palestinians that makes them perpetual enemies. That's not tenable long term. Israel's ultimate shalom won't happen until Palestinians have shalom. And if you care about Palestinians and want them to prosper, as I do, you will care about Israel. Because until Israel has their just needs for security met, to know they can go in a coffee shop and not get blown up, they're going to continue to make life hard for Palestinians, which just builds that well of resentment, and so the cycle goes. They aren't bad people. They're scared people. But scared people can do bad things. Their shalom is in each other's shalom. Now, I don't know how you do that on a geopolitical level. I'm not even sure that's the answer. Maybe it's the people themselves that can do it, which is why I'm grateful for Palestinian Christians. There are Palestinian Christians, like Daoud Nasser, who we mentioned before. He has an olive farm in the West Bank, and he's had a title of that land for 100 years, but Israel wants it to build a settlement, even though it's in the West Bank, which is supposed to be the future Palestinian state. They've shut off his water, shut off his electricity, the road to his house. They cut down his olive trees to drive him out. He could be mad. But as you enter his property, there's a sign that says, we refuse to be enemies. And all are welcome to his amazing Middle Eastern hospitality, including Israelis. And he has won the respect of some of the Israeli settlers around him who are prone to dislike Palestinians, but he's won them over by his Christ-like love. I'm grateful also for rabbis that I met in Israel who are working to help Israelis and Palestinians reconcile and understand each other. These people get that their shaloms are tied together. See, anti-anybody wrecks everybody. Pro-everybody blesses everybody. Just that simple, just that hard. 
And now that I have irritated all of you, I will move on. Something to offend everyone in that part. Um, the only way we really change culture is to make more and different culture. So as Christians, we change culture when we work for economic flourishing so that ethical businesses provide meaningful employment. We work for, we help the poor get tools to get out of poverty. It means social flourishing by seeking racial healing, reconciliation, and justice. Emotional flourishing by how we listen to and care for others. And many of you, most of you, do these things well done. You are part of Jesus' revolution. As I mentioned several weeks ago, my oldest daughter, Holly, is applying to various universities for next year, and she's been accepted to some and still waiting to hear from others. One of the places she's been accepted is a Christian university, which I won't name, but not the one where I'm a board member. And they sent my wife and me a letter. My wife and I are getting a lot of letters, right? And more than her, I think, more than Holly. They misspelled Holly's name just with one L. So this is what it said. It said, congratulations on Holly's acceptance at our university. I hope our university will feel like home for Holy. I hope so too. It's a Christian university, right? I'd also like to personally invite you and Holy to a reception. Well, of course they want to invite Holy and me. I'm a pastor. Wherever I go, Holy goes with me, right? The end said it is exciting to think about how Holy can thrive here. And this college application thing is so good for sermon illustrations. God wants holy and wholeness to thrive, so we are invited to bring holy with us wherever we go. See how I worked that into the sermon? Like, seamless, masterful. Um, that's, that's preaching art. You just didn't know that. Um, now, that's all hard to do, right? That's super hard to do. How do we, so where does the power come from? How do we get that to happen? Well, for starters, right, make Jesus your role model because he knows how to do this. Jesus changed history not by taking power but by losing power and serving. Not with a sword in his hand, but with nails in his hand. Not coming to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Jesus left his home, the ultimate exile, to, and moved into our neighborhood and lived among us. He knows how to do this. Keep connecting with him through prayer, through worship, through scripture, through community. Second, trust that God is a good father. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to shalom you and give you a future and a hope. And we love that verse and understandably so. Right, how nice. God has a plan for me. We put it on t-shirts and toothbrushes and all that stuff. And that's, that's fine. Right? We don't much care what God's plans are for we know the plans we have for us, right? But it's comforting to think that God has a plan should we ever get interested. But what's so powerful about this verse is not the text, it's the context, Exile. And you can just see the Israelites going, that's your plan, God, 70 years? Your plan sucks. But God says, exile isn't good, but I am a good, good father. So my plans are to bring you good, even in this. I'm trying to bless you here. Cooperate. And then third, and I'm going to keep saying this until we're all doing it, including me, every day. This is how you thrive in exile. Every day, pray, God, show me how I can partner with you to bring your healing today wherever I am School, work, neighborhood, office, all of that. And ask God to give you a redemptive imagination. A redemptive imagination imagines what your school, your work, your neighborhood, your home, your volunteer time would be if things were happening the way God wants them to happen. Redemptive imagination. Growing up in the Tri-Cities, when we wanted adventure, we would go to the city, Yakima. And... Uh, as many of you know, there are signs in Yakima that say, Welcome to Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington. Okay, just for the record, this is Palm Springs. Okay, and this is Yakima. Ah. 
and this is Yakima in winter. Someone has a redemptive imagination, right? Whoever made those signs has a redemptive, what could Yakima be, right? Like redemptive imagination. Someone in Palm Springs has a good sense of humor though because they made this sign. Welcome to Palm Springs, the Yakima of California. <laughs> That's just so awesome. <laughs> a redemptive imagination. What could be in my school, my work, my neighborhood if God had his way here and how can I be part of it? I just saw a news story about some high school students in Florida who started a club called We Dine Together. And it's students who look for other students who are eating lunch alone and introduce themselves, eat with them, make friends. Because at lunch, you can just see all the cliques, wealthy kids over here and kind of assisted lunch students over there and each racial group in its own little group, right? And many students alone, many students alone for all kinds of reasons. Some in this school are immigrants. They don't know the culture. Some have been told that they should be deported by their classmates. Others are just shy or they're left out. So one of the founders is 17, his name is Dennis Esteban, and, and he understands what that feels like because he came here as an immigrant when he was only six years old, couldn't even ask the teachers, his teachers where the bathroom was. So he's had his own exile experience. And out of that started this club that's now got about 100 students in it. Every day they fan out to find students eating alone and sit down and eat with them. Some of the students who were interviewed in this news article, they had, they had tears in their eyes as they talked about how lonely they felt. One said lunch used to be the most excruciating part of her day. She felt so rejected until people from this club kind of made friends with her. One guy who was in the club used to be a, was on the, was a star football player on the football team, gave up, quit the team, gave up all the social credibility that comes with being on the football team in high school to spend more time in the We Dine Together Club because it's just so much fun. School counselor said it's, it's, showing, it's making a huge difference in people's emotional and social well-being, a.k.a. shalom. One teacher said, I used to see all these cliques, but now I see Latino, black, white students coming together, and now they're starting similar clubs in other schools. Okay, that'll preach. Or like out of his own exile experience as an immigrant, this 17-year-old and others are bringing social shalom, racial shalom, emotional shalom, changing the culture of the school by making more and better and different culture, which heals their own exile experiences. And if you change the culture of one school, and then another, and then another, and then an office, and a neighborhood, pretty soon, one by one, you change a town, a state, a nation. It's happened before in history. It can happen again. So here's your homework, okay? Here's your homework. We're calling it the one-story challenge. Between now and Easter, I am challenging you as your pastor, yea, verily, assigning you and me to have one story of how you participated with God in bringing his healing wherever you are, school, work, neighborhood, home, church, volunteer time. One story between now and Easter, how you participated with God in bringing his healing. And it doesn't have to be huge and dramatic, you know. And then I baptized them in the break room and we cried and, you know, it was kumbaya and all that. It doesn't have to be that, right? It can just be listening to a coworker in a way that helped. Uh, it could be something with your kids or as a parent, uh, something in your neighborhood. It could be big, it could be small. Just one story, one story. And the way you get that story is to pray every day, God, show me an opportunity I have today to bring your healing and then keep your eyes open. Okay, one story between now and Easter. 
And then next week, I'm going to tell you how we're going to use those stories in another community art project, similar to what we did in Advent uh, with the book of Jonah. And it won't, don't worry, it won't be weird or anything like that. Uh, you always have to say that in Presbyterian church, right? It'll be fine. <laughs> What's your exile? What's your exile? Trust that God is at work and can bring you good even there, even when it's hard. And look at how you can bring his shalom and his healing wherever you are, for your shalom is tied to the shalom of that place. And then lean on Jesus, the ultimate exile who left the comforts of heaven to take on the suffering of earth, executed outside the city gates as a symbol of his exile, to take the exile that we deserved so we could find our home in him. And he has plans to prosper us. Not when things get better, not only if or how about when, not someday, not somewhere, but there, there in that Babylon, right there, he has plans. Oh, the plans he has for you, for me, and this whole wide world that he loves so much. So Jesus, thank you that you have plans and that they are good because you are a good father. Help us to find your blessings even in our exile experiences and Lord, help us to bring your blessings wherever you, we are. You have put us here for such a time as this. Help us bring your blessings wherever we are, scattered throughout the east side and beyond. Be your representatives there. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.